1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore. I'm the Director of Communications at the National Cannabis Industry Association. Before I introduce my guest, I want to remind our listeners that NCIA is headed on the road for some in-person events on June 6th, June 7th, and June 9th we will be in the Empire State. We're going to Rochester, New York, Albany, New York, and New York City for the Insights and Influencers New York Opportunity Tour. Head to our website, thecannabisindustry.org, and navigate to our events section of our website to learn more and register. Tickets are complimentary for NCIA members. And non-member tickets are available for $100 at the early bird rate. So go ahead and register your team today. We'll see you in New York very soon. Moving on to my guest today, uh, I'm introducing Fruquan Muzan. He's a partner in the National Cannabis Law Practice Group at Fox Rothschild. And he played a central role in New Jersey's successful effort to legalize recreational cannabis as formal former general counsel for the new jersey senate majority fruquan worked closely with legislative leaders to craft the state law that cleared the way for adult use cannabis in the garden state fox rothschild is a national law firm with 950 attorneys in more than seven practice areas and is a true pioneer in the field of cannabis law Fox Rothschild was among the first major law firms to embrace the industry and is consistently ranked among the nation's top cannabis law firms in Chambers, USA. Thank you for joining me on the show today, Fruquan.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Great. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit. Uh, Let's share a little bit about your background and experience before you started working in cannabis did you go straight into law or you want to be an astronaut when you grow up or...
2: <laughs> What's your never, never wanted to be an astronaut i don't like flights more than three or four hours so being Feet up on the ground months that wasn't going to work out but i did think i was going to be the, the middleweight champion of the world and then after that i was going to be a lawyer i always wanted to be a lawyer at some point in my life <laughs> um even at an early age so Just kept following the dream until it got done. And I became a lawyer in 1998. So, well before getting involved in cannabis, I had been a lawyer for 20 years already.
1: Yeah. Tell me more about that. What kind of firms were you working for? What kind of areas of law were you practicing?
2: Well, I was fortunate. I did very well in law school. So, like when I graduated in 98, I was ranked, I think, number four or five in the class. So, what do you do when you graduate four or five in the class? Well, you get a federal clerkship. So, I clerked on the federal level, on the district level, the trial court level, and on the appellate level. And then after that, it was big firm life. So I was a litigator in a big firm for a number of years. And then I got a call during the time John Corzine was the governor and he needed help in his assistant counsel's office. So I went and worked in the Corzine administration for a few years. Then I was back to big law firms and litigating again. So I did that again for a few years. And then I got a call again from Steve Sweeney, who was then the Senate president of the state of New Jersey, and he said he was going to run for governor. He ended up not doing that, but he was going to beef up his office to get ready for that run, and he recruited me to be the general counsel in the state Senate for the majority Democrat Party. Busy, busy. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a great ride.
1: Great. So moving on to taking all of these legal skills that you have and experience, How did you end up moving into working on cannabis in in this legal space?
2: Well, I didn't didn't choose cannabis. It was forced on me. So as I've said, I was the the head lawyer in the, the Democratic Senate for the Senate at the time. And in that role, it was like 2014 to 2019. It was a a big, very interesting job. And at first, Chris Christie was the governor, so it made it even more interesting because we were fighting with him and we are trying to do Equal Opportunity Act and we are trying to raise the minimum wage and put cameras on police vehicles and then seat judges. So I'm busy doing all these things. And then one day, Senator Scutari just walked in my office and we were talking about a bunch of things and he just said, I think we should make marijuana legal in New Jersey. And I was like, Bro, I'm busy. I got other things to do. There's no way uh, we're gonna get that done. And that's kinda how it got started. It was his idea that we were gonna make it legal. There was a trip to Colorado. It started to gain momentum. I never thought it was gonna work, at least initially. You know, New Jersey's one of the only states you can't pump your own gas or buy a firecracker. I thought there was no way. <laughs> you know, I was like, you know I thought there was no way that was gonna happen. So it was forced on me. I didn't think it was gonna work, but it somehow, you know, we kept on moving until it got done.
1: Great. So these days you're, you're working with Fox Rothschild as well, which is a huge, huge law firm. Um, and, and it has its own cannabis law practice group right. at this point as well, a whole a whole department. What's, uh, what's going on there? What's your day-to-day like when you're working on these issues? And what else is up with uh, Fox Rothschild this year?
2: Well, it's been great. I, I joined Fox recently. So initially um, when I decided to leave the government because I saw, I was like, wait a minute, this is going to happen. It's going to be a lot of money made and I don't want everyone to get rich except me. So let me get back into private practice and, and start, you know, getting involved with it from that end. Cause I figured no one understood it better than me. I was involved in writing it from the start. So initially I left and I looked for a firm that didn't have a cannabis practice group because I wanted to do my own thing, right? So I started a cannabis practice group at a major New Jersey firm. I think it might be the largest New Jersey-based firm at the time. So I started there. I built a cannabis practice group. It was great. It got so big that I had to look to join a bigger team. So at that point, you know, they put the rankings out. Fox Rothschild was always in the top five. In the country and they actually had a New Jersey office I was like it kind of makes sense for me to go somewhere where I can grow the business, so I ended up here.
1: Gotcha great so how many attorneys are you working with on on these issues and and any specific things keep coming up over and over again.
2: Well what's great about this firm is because they have this national practice so there's people all over the country that have been involved with it. I think I'm pretty much the guy in New Jersey, but there's people that can help me if I get you know stumped or there's some M&A stuff or some litigation. Um, the day-to-day in where we are in New Jersey is basically there is just a rush to get licenses. Like we're in the early stages of the business, right? So
1: mm-hmm.
2: there are just countless, I guess I could count with a calculator, clients trying to get licenses right now. So the day-to-day is spent doing a lot of regulatory work there's a lot of lobbying. I don't know if you know, but like in New Jersey, one of the mistakes I think we made was giving the local municipalities too much power. So, before too can, much
1: power? Oh. Too much
2: power. Like before you can even apply to the state for a license to do cannabis, you have to get a resolution from the town where you're going to operate specifically saying that they endorse you and your plans to operate at a specific location. So, as you can see, like if you don't have someone that knows the mayor or someone that knows the councilman or they don't recognize your name, you you might have trouble even getting that far, mm. you know, and I, and I think that might have been, you know, a mistake that we made, just giving them carte blanche to say no, not just to cannabis as a, as an industry, but to a particular applicant.
1: Sure. It becomes who you know and who you rub elbows with rather than the merit of what you bring to the table, right?
2: Right. That's exactly right exactly right.
1: interesting i mean I,
2: I don't necessarily like it even though i mean selfishly it works in my favor i'm very politically connected i work for the senate and the governors everybody knows who i am so i can get a meeting with anybody but in terms of like fairness throughout the industry for everyone that wants to apply i don't know that it is because mm-hmm. if you don't hire me or some lobbyist or somebody may not even get in the door
1: right right All right, well, let's take our first commercial break, and then we'll come right back and talk more with Fruquan Muzan from Fox Rothschild. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too all right we're back on ncia's cannabis industry voice on cannabis radio i'm your host bethany moore with the national cannabis industry association and we're talking with fruquan Muzon from the cannabis law practice group at fox rothschild so as we mentioned earlier before the commercial break you personally helped craft the adult use cannabis legislation in New Jersey. So naturally, that gives you a very unique perspective into the market in that state. So I'd like to hear more about what that process was like and what your role was officially there and who you worked with to accomplish all of this.
2: Wow. It was the most frustrating and rewarding experience of my life. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I believe that
2: Yeah, very simple so the plan initially was to legalize tax and regulate simple enough big topic but simple enough right so initially the bill was about 65 70 pages when we started so now we're going to have a meeting with the Democratic senators and we're going to unveil this plan one of the senators walks in and he says this will never work only rich white men from out of state are going to come. And they're going to take all their money and leave. And that was pretty much the end of the conversation because everyone's like, "We don't want that. So I'm taking notes. I'm like, rich white men i of state. So uh, you, we attacked every part of that. So to make sure that not only rich people got into it, we introduced the concept of conditional licenses for people that make under $200,000 a year would be able to get a conditional license and then with that conditional license be able to go out into the market and raise more money. Then we did a whole thing about diversity so it's not just all white people. Then there was a part about gender to make sure that there wasn't all men. And then we put something in there about micro licenses and that has to be 100% New Jersey owned. So and it went on like that. So then all right rich white man out of state. I have that done. Let's represent it. And then you do that, and then someone says, well, what about social justice? So the first question, like, what does that even mean? So we gotta try to figure that out. So we're gonna do expungements, because you don't want people getting millionaires by selling marijuana, meanwhile, other people are rotting in jail, right? That doesn't sound fair. So we're gonna have expungements for everyone that has been convicted of a marijuana offense automatically. Is that gonna satisfy people? Well. Some people, because then it's like, well, what offenses? So everyone agrees that if you got caught with a simple possession, you would get an expungement. Then someone walks in and says, well, sometimes the prosecutor decides whether to charge you with possession or intent to distribute, and it could be the same amount. Okay, so let's get expungements for intent to distribute. But how much? Because no one wants someone that's selling 40 pounds we thought that was a lot back then now a thousand pounds is considered a micro license but back then 40 pounds so we're gonna and the way the law is written in new jersey it's one level of offense if you were caught distributing less than an ounce so everyone agreed to that and then the second level was between one ounce and five pounds and we got stuck some senators were like we're not going to allow someone to get an expungement and they had five pounds of marijuana So we got stuck, and it stalled right there at that point. But it went on and on and on like that for a year or two.
1: Mm, mm. So it sounds like you were kind of in an air traffic controller kind of a role with people coming in and out of a revolving door with new suggestions. All very valid suggestions, though.
2: Yeah, but the problem is, so you have to get enough votes, but you had certain things that were damned if you do, damned if you don't. So if I Mm. Through the expungements up to five pounds, I'm going to lose these more moderate Democrats, right? And all the Republicans. But if I don't, then I'm going to lose the liberal Democrats and I'm stuck either way. And the consumption lounges was another, like, trap like that. Some people didn't want it. Some people that were representing, you know, more urban towns wanted to make sure that people that lived in federal housing had a place to participate. So if you add that, you lose. If you don't add that, you lose. It was... It was the most frustrating experience of my life,
1: for sure. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine for sure. Um, Yeah, it's a moving target sometimes. But so specifically New York uh, and New Jersey and, you know, all those little states up there. New Jersey is an East Coast state. And we're seeing all these little colonial states get on board with cannabis in the recent years. And New Jersey looks different than California, for example. So I'm curious what some of the other unique aspects of New Jersey's cannabis market you could talk about and explain.
2: Well, I think as, as people come online, you learn from the mistakes of others or what you perceive to be mistakes of others. During this Colorado trip, when we were talking to regulators in Colorado, Uh, One of the senators asked, you know, what was the biggest mistake you think you made? And the person said homegrown, allowing homegrown. He said, because you can't tax it, you can't regulate it, you can't figure out even where it is. So I wish I hadn't done that because now there's all this stuff on the market. We don't know where it came from. So we don't do homegrown in New Jersey, although it's allowed in Colorado and California. And there's a lot of pushback from people in New Jersey that think we should change that rule. Um, and also with the edibles, edibles have been problems in other places. Um, children, if, you, if you're used to eating three cookies and you see some cannabis cookies and you don't know that's what it is, you might eat three cookies and that could be dangerous. So in New Jersey, we've been very conservative in terms of allowing edibles and no home grow. I think that makes us different than the people that came before us. And New York that came a little after us, like I said earlier about having to have a town approval I think they've loosened that up so you don't actually have to have a town vote on your license in New York. So I think as people come on, they're going to get it's going to get better and better and better. I want to say New Jersey's the best, but I think, <laughs> I think people that will come after us will, you know, improve on things that we did wrong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well. Given all that, I, I am really encouraged to see more states, including social equity licensing in the regulations from the get-go, rather than as an afterthought. Um, and I'd like to hear more about what we can expect from New Jersey in that respect and how, how its cannabis market will reinvest and perhaps even alleviate some of the damages done by the war on drugs.
2: Well, that's kind of a complicated... So it's it's two different things, if you think about it. So the social equity has been defined as allowing people that may have had prior convictions get into the business, right? Initially, as I was explaining before, initially, the thought was to, to remove that barrier, right? To pretty much put you on equal playing field. If you had a conviction, you could still apply. But to our credit, the state... The regulators have taken it a step even further and pretty much given a priority to those people that have been arrested before marijuana charges to be able to get a license. So, I, you know, I'm encouraged by that. I never saw that coming. I wonder if we could have passed the bill if that was a thought, but we've gotten there now. So very encouraged by that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, good, it's good to have a hand in, in the process of making sure that you know, generational wealth is is a term that I've learned from our diversity, equity, and inclusion committees as well. They've been writing some some great blogs and recording some great podcasts here with us mm-hmm. um, about the importance of creating generational wealth. It's it's not just access to the industry, but you know, the idea that small businesses are the backbone of america small businesses lift up communities small businesses um are really the the path to um alleviate poverty um as well and like you were mentioning earlier you don't want all the licenses to go to a small group of rich white men Hmm. Because they're just going to take it and they're going to leave. Exactly. They're, they're not going to reinvest in the community. They're not going to, you know, they're not passing it down to their children um, in the way that we see small businesses, mom and pop boutique type of business uh, models do. Is that, would you agree with me?
2: I would agree with that. But I will I will tell you something that very few people realize, and I didn't realize it at the time but the way they define social equity in New Jersey is if you have been arrested more than once on a misdemeanor marijuana charge or just once on a major marijuana charge. (laughs) Now, when when I said that, there's a picture in your head of who this person is that got arrested for marijuana. And I think I know what that picture looks like. The reality is it could be anybody, you know, and it's not like you had to have been arrested in the last few years, you could have gotten arrested when you're 19 and now you're 50. So you Mm. could very easily be a Wall Street executive. You could be an attorney. You could be a doctor. You could be anybody that, you know, that has gotten arrested. So it it doesn't hit the mark exactly, Mm. right, because it's still wealthy, black, white, Indian people that have gotten these arrests they didn't go to jail or didn't have any big consequences, but they certainly still satisfy the definition and they're Hmm. getting a bunch of these licenses too. Interesting. Right. And and the definition came out late. I'll tell you one quick thing. And I know we're short for the time, but we knew that there was going to be a social equity license, but we didn't know what that meant at the time. So I had a couple of wealthy clients that said, you know, I want to partner with a social equity applicant so that I can get the priority do you know anyone that's going to meet the definition? I'm like, I'm sure I do, coming from where I come from. I know a lot of people. Then the definition comes out, and it says, if you've been arrested twice for a small marijuana, and more than once, the wealthy person was like, oh, my, I fit the definition. Forget what I said before. Let's apply. Hmm. And that's not something anyone saw coming, because the picture of the person marijuana, arrested for marijuana isn't necessarily the reality
1: yeah yeah gotcha
2: interesting you could be any color any class and gotten pulled over
1: yeah absolutely all right we have to take our last commercial break and then we'll come back and wrap up our chat with fuquan Muzan of fox rothschild stay tuned we'll be right back ncia's cannabis industry voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore, and we've been chatting with Fruquan Muzan from Fox Rothschild and their cannabis law practice group. Um, So as we're wrapping up the last few minutes here of the show, um, I'm curious about some highlights about the licensing process. Um, The whole process of getting a license to grow sell, manufacture extracts, make cookies, whatever. I mean, it's definitely not a simple or easy process in any state (laughs) with legal cannabis. They definitely make you jump through some hoops, um, do some tricks, and uh, I'm sure New Jersey is the same. Could you share some of the highlights about the licensing process in New Jersey that our listeners should know
2: about? It's a major undertaking. If I was on a camera, I could show you the documents that have gone into licenses and it could it's be, like
1: CVS receipts. Like, yeah,
2: <laughs> it's like a thousand pages of stuff. I mean, and, and it's all fair. They want to know who you are, what you're doing, where you're doing it, how you're going to do it. But by the time you get the answer to all those questions, you've hired a lawyer, an accountant, a lobbyist, and, and it can be very expensive. The hardest part, as I mentioned earlier, is getting this town approval. That in and of itself can be is
1: getting the what?
2: The town approval. So you, oh, right. you have to get you have to find a location in a place that allows it, number one, and towns were able to opt out. And it has to be a place in the town where they say it's okay, which could be three blocks in the worst part of town. Mm, zoning. Yep. Yeah. And then the landlord knows that. So he, he doubles the price when he sees you coming. Um and that's just that's been the hardest part really. And not everyone has been able to successfully do that. Even if they had the money, even if they had the experience, it's still difficult to find a location and get the town approval. By far, that's the hardest part.
1: Great, yeah. Any other highlights about the licensing process uh, worth sharing with our audience?
2: Well, think about it as one big resume. The application is one big resume. They want to know who you are. Now, if you were trying to be A dispensary owner, wouldn't it be great if you were a pharmacist? And you can say, I've been selling drugs for 20 years, right? If you were a cultivator, wouldn't it be best if you were a farmer, right? And if you were trying to process, wouldn't it be best if you you were a chemist? Oh, and by the way, have a few million dollars and have the approval of the town. So everyone has to put together a team because it's not one person that has a few million dollars, uh, has a pharmacy license and, you know, a town approval or connections with the town, so it's usually a team of a few people in each application, so that right. they can create one nice resume, and those are the people that win.
1: Yeah. So lots of paperwork. Make sure you have lots of ink in your pens. <laughs> 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 Got it. Yeah. Well, that that tracks with uh, with what we're seeing in in other states as well. So, um, but you know, forward progress. Uh, Again, much much like you had said, when I was a medical marijuana activist in the 2000s, the idea of adult use cannabis was like not even on my radar. Uh, right. just, you know, just thought medical would be the achievement of our activism and advocacy. And then, boy, shoo, yeah, eight something years ago things really, really changed with the first adult use states. And it's just been incredible to watch ever since.
2: Are you having um, fun with it also? What's that? I said, are you having fun with it also, all the change?
1: Um, It is fun. Um, it's, you know, it's stressful. It's fun. It's <laughs> never a dull moment.
2: Right, right.
1: Um, but yet still dragging the same issues you know, down the road, like banking and 280E of the tax code, like when are we going to get these fixed? And, um, but you know, in Congress, there are dozens of pieces of pro cannabis reform legislation, whereas 10 years ago, there was barely one piece of legislation in Congress. So I think that speaks to the progress.
2: Yes, I agree
1: awesome well hey thank you for taking the time to chat with me today learned a lot about what's going on in new jersey appreciate you joining us on the podcast today fruquan
2: thanks for having me
1: absolutely and thanks to our audience for tuning in to another episode of ncia's cannabis industry voice until next time
2: The opinions expressed on this cannabisradio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of cannabisradio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.
0: Do you know that when you buy Tide Pods and Downy Liquid Fabric Enhancer at Target, the biggest size is the best price? That means keeping your clothes looking great for longer and saving money. Tide tackles all your tough stains and Downy protects your clothes from stretching, fading, and fuzz. Find Tide and Downy large size laundry items at Target. Versus other sizes of same product at Target based on Target's list price per ounce slash pack as of 12-13-2021.
2: Does your dog do zoomies over their current dog food? If the answer is no, you should check out Sundays for Dogs. Sundays makes dog food with delicious human grade ingredients. In fact, in a blind taste test with leading dog food brands, dogs preferred Sundays 40 to 0. Plus, Sundays helps with digestion, immunity, and energy. Right now, you can get 50% off your first month. Just visit sundaysfordogs.com/woof50. Again, that's sundaysfordogs.com/woof50.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups.